I mean, I hate documentary for the most part. Most documentaries do so very, very, very little. Uh, they fall back on uh, a recitation of worn formulas uh, and don't even strive to do something new or different. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Academy Award-winning director Errol Morris. He is the director of Gates of Heaven, The Thin Blue Line, The Fog of War, Standard Operating Procedure, Tabloid, and most recently American Dharma. He's also an enormously successful commercial director. Uh, he's a MacArthur Award winner. And he's somebody that I first interviewed in Cambridge, Massachusetts a few years ago for Amazon's Kindle Single series. And I had 10 pages of questions to ask him. I've been a huge fan of his work for many, many years. And when he entered the room, I was told I had 40 minutes. And it was curt and hostile. And I was too nervous to consult my questions. And we just started chatting. And four hours later, he gave me his phone number very generously and said, this was fun, let's keep going. And he's somebody that I've come back to when I've written books about chess or profiles on various people. And I think that's why I thought to talk to Errol for this interview was how he is able to get people to reveal themselves and... One of his great techniques is just don't get in the way of silence and let people talk. And if you don't interrupt them after 10 minutes, basically everybody will convince you they're insane because we all are. And I've used many of his insights and wisdoms to really the best effect that I, I was able to in, in spending a week with Roy Jones or time with Mike Tyson or Andre Ward to really try to get these people to reveal themselves in a way they never have before. And Errol's work almost more than any other interviewer has been, I think, it, the most influential for me about how to approach that. So this was a fun, odd conversation. You catch people when you catch them. But I hope you enjoy Errol Morris. Um, I wanted to start off in an odd place, but I, I was shocked that this had reached you and even more shocked and delighted about how it reached you, which is the program Nathan for You. You wrote about it in The New Yorker as being one of your favorite love stories. Indeed, I did. So what did you – this guy was a complete revelation to me. He, he went to high school about a mile from me in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I just wondered, like, how do you pro process what he's doing, what he is uh, playing with reality, playing with a lot of your themes? I just thought it was just so uh, – when I saw your review, I was reading the review before I realized it was you, and I was just imagining you laughing and delighting in this guy's fascinating world that he's created with this program. Well, I – first heard about him from my son Hamilton 
my estimable son, Hamilton Morris, um, and I instantly fell in love. Hmm. I just loved the show, um, and the show just kept getting better and better and weirder and weirder until this final episode, which I thought was really the best of all. Um, sometimes it's so strange you don't know quite what to make of it, but that's what makes it art. So yes, I'm a fan, complete fan. I was talking with someone, well, with Fred Wiseman a couple of days ago when we were talking about movies, and I said, I I suppose this would extend to television as well, why well, just restrict it to movies. And I had only really two responses to things that I have seen. Um, uh, one was disgust and the other was envy. <laughs> hmm. And um, they're things which are really so good, I envy them. And I would say that Nathan, for you, falls in that category. It had it had a lot of elements, I thought, of sort of what made Sasha Baron Cohen so daring. But I, there was something lovable about Nathan, even though I understand he's the character is also quite terrifying. But there's something sweet about his awkwardness that's not there, that feels predatory with Cohen's work. I, I don't. I think you're absolutely right. And yes, yes, I do like Sasha Baron Cohen. Me too. Um, the film Bruno? Yeah. That's the, the homophobic lane of... Uh, Exposing that in America. So when Bruno came out, because I am, for better or worse, a member of the Academy, <laughs> I wrote in Bruno as best picture of the year. Really? And someone asked me, how could you possibly do that? And I said, it's really simple, because it was. Hmm. What what took you to that conclusion? I, I enjoy it, too. I'm curious that you had such a strong reaction to it. It's sheer excellence. Huh. That that UFC cage match at the end leading to um, second or, or third base in front of a crowd um, frothing to, to attack them as they're in... Um, loving embrace to Celine Dion was quite something. I mean, I hate documentary for the most part. Most documentaries do so very, very, very little. Uh, they fall back on uh, a recitation of worn formulas uh, and don't even strive to do something new or different. But there are documentaries that extend our whole idea of what a documentary could be or should be or would be, whatever. 
they are not doing business as usual. And I would say that um, Nathan for You certainly falls into that category. It's a documentary category, but it's a very odd documentary category and an interesting one. Mm. Um, and I would say Sasha Baron Cohen as well falls into that category. Um, I suppose you could say that Bruno is the best documentary feature of the year, but why why restrict it in such an unfortunate way, and why not just give it best picture? Hmm. Which documentaries inspired you as a documentarian? My enormous love of the work of Fred Wiseman, mm. which started early and continues unabated. He once said to me, how could you possibly like what I do? It's all done handheld. He calls it wobbly scope. Um, it is some species of verite or direct cinema, whatever you want to call it. And... I told him, my view really hasn't changed much over the years, that it was the content that he had made some of the most deeply expressionistic films I had ever seen. There was a kind of surrealism built out of reality that I found overwhelming and compelling. Mm. Um, you know, an artist of the real, however you want to describe him. Well, I'd like to, I wanted to ask you, one, one of the places that I revisit your work a lot is in the, it's now 20 years old, which is baffling to me, the first person TV series that you did, where I think you had 17 episodes in all over two seasons. And I, I wanted to know, A, like, your feelings about that now that it's been 20 years. Um, and also talk about uh, a gamut of humanity that you selected there. I mean, an autistic college professor and expert on humane cattle slaughter techniques, um, true crime authors, two of the highest IQs in the world, somebody corresponding with the Unabomber, um, <laughs> Death, um, lawyers for credit card debtors. Um, I, I wanted to know how you felt about that series, and if you were at gunpoint forced to come up with 17 more right now, how you would find those stories that would engage you enough to want to spend the time that you do with your subjects? Well, I wanted to continue that series. They did not want to continue paying for it. That's always a problem. Hmm. I love doing it, and I love um, digging around in the grab bag of reality looking for stuff that can be turned into some form of cinema. Um, I've often thought of continuing it, of doing more. Um, I would have been very happy to do, you know, a hundred or even a thousand of them. But I am grateful that I got to do some rather than none. And many of them are... Um, well, I still still love them. The Rick Rosner uh, piece, 
one in a hundred million trillion is still one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things that I I have actually done. I don't have to disown it. I can actually even maybe, maybe even be proud of it. What about that one? I mean, I, I interviewed Rick for this podcast uh, two weeks ago. Um, wow. Your work... Your work led me to him. I've been a pen pal of his for the last, I don't know, five, six years. Every time I go to Los Angeles, I hike with him. I love him, and I know that you love him. But I absolutely love him, yeah. <laughs> he's amazing. Um, he, he's just recovering from cancer, actually. Um, oh. Yeah, he's is had he a, okay? He, uh, so far, but it's uh, there's been some bumps along the way, and, and he was a comedy writer, I think, as you know, um, for a late-night show. Yep. And, and he lost that work for a inopportune comment that he spends as much time doing IQ tests as he does masturbating, so there's nothing excessive there, and that got him into some problems. Yeah. From Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> um, but I wondered, what is it about... What is it about him and his story? Uh, well, what draws you to it so much, and why the hell can't his story find a larger audience? Because I have always been mystified why he is not like a, a major figure in American life as just such a fascinating character. I don't know, ultimately, you know, what gets traction and what doesn't. I often think I don't really know how to promote what I do, or maybe I'm not interested enough in promoting what I do. But I'm still glad that I've done them. Uh, I mean, recently I did a whole series of, I guess they were presented as ads or possible ads uh, with Bob Odenkirk on Global Meltdown. And how much traction did they receive? Hardly any at all. I don't even know if you've seen them. No, I haven't. I'd be happy to send them to you. Please. So, maybe I'm not a particularly talented guy at getting my work out there, although, oddly enough, it did get out there, or at least... A lot of it has gotten out there, but it's never been easy. And, of course, American Dharma was one of the worst experiences of all. Can we talk about that? I wanted to get into your films with, you know, especially very prominent figures, and I, it seemed like Fog of War was um, an entree into – one after another, just line him up for Errol and he's just going to knock him down. And, and just the critical success of that, I don't know how much financial success there was with Fog of War, but it seemed like there's just been a lot of controversy with standard operating procedure and then Rumsfeld and then especially with American Dharma. So could we start with Dharma and just uh, talk well, about after Fog operating, of War? Standard operating procedure really, really fascinates me. I've become quite friendly with Seymour Hirsch. I consider him to be a friend of mine. 
um, and someone I truly adore. Maybe he wouldn't like to hear me talking about him this way, but it's true. And Cy had written for the New Yorker about um, the events at Abu Ghraib, and he was credited with getting those photographs published. Um, they had been all over the place, but because of various governmental pressures and military pressures, they had never seen the light of day. And it was Cy, I might add, as usual, had the temerity to actually force them into print. Um, but the photographs made me think about photography in general, what we take from a photograph, and the very specific question, what do these photographs represent? What do they tell us about what happened in Abu Ghraib? And so I created something. Maybe people didn't want to hear it or weren't ready for it. I can't explain it. But I think what I did was an attempt to understand those people the monsters, uh, do I have to put it in quotes, uh, who were held responsible for what happened. And like almost all of my films, you have to make certain inferences based on what you see. It's not just simply laid out as a polemic. But I was endlessly fascinated by the first photographs they were taken, they were taken by Sabrina Harmon at the hard site. And what did they show? They showed prisoners standing in pools of their own urine, hooded, um, basically handcuffed to cell bars. This is at the hard site in Abu Ghraib. So she is, in so many ways, a documentary photographer. She's doing something that she shouldn't have been doing. No one was encouraged to take photographs, and certainly no one was encouraged to disseminate those photographs publicly. But she took these pictures, and she's showing something that was already there. She didn't orchestrate the scenes. She didn't hood the prisoners or handcuff them to bars. That was something that she observed almost in a pure documentary manner. And as a result, she and Lindy England and Megan Ambule got blamed. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, many of them engage in abuse that goes beyond documentary photography. But it seemed at the heart of it that they were documenting 
something terrible that was going on that they hadn't created. So they had been brought in in media res. And the movie is very much about that and about these people who ultimately took the blame for something which I believe was policy. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think also something you've mentioned to me a couple of times in the past we've talked about your belief that maybe there isn't as much depth as people think about evil. Maybe there's a lot of shallowness to evil that seems to permeate a lot of the characters that you talk to um, and really want to draw out a little bit. I'm thinking of like Mr. Death in particular, Fred, Fred Luchter, Luchter. He pronounces it Lucher, except Lucher. that he's in Germany, and then it's Leuchter. <laughs> okay. Um, but, I mean, little things like, I think you, you told me an anecdote once that it was hard to film with him because while he's a Holocaust denier, he didn't want people to see him smoking all the time because it would be bad because he's a role model for kids. That's correct. I mean... <laughs> you seem to live for these kind of moments that your subjects offer you, but um, I mean, what is it? There's a, such a depth in Fog of War to Robert McNamara's sense of guilt. There's such interiority about it, but I, I wonder where you go when you're sitting across from that for. I mean, I don't know how many hours you sat down with McNamara, 20, 30, 40? Probably uh, 16, 17, somewhere around that. So how does it feel to be in front of that kind of energy versus Donald Rumsfeld or, uh, you know, American Dharma, Steve, Steve Bannon, where it, I don't get any sense of interiority, depth, um, remorse, compassion from these people at all. Someone pointed out, I guess you could call it pointing out the obvious, but it's still relevant, that McNamara was filmed in the early aughts, I guess, 2002, um, and he had resigned as or fired, whatever you prefer, whatever version of the story. He, he resigned in, in 1967, early 1967. Um, so there was a long period of time between my filming him and the end of his service um, to the Johnson administration. With Rumsfeld, much less time. Hmm. I'm filming Rumsfeld a matter of years uh, after the end of the Bush administration. Not that many. Um, and the Iraq War was still very much alive and on everybody's mind. Um, and with Bannon, we're in the middle of it. Nothing has ended. It's ongoing. And no one knows when it will end, what's going to happen. Um, 
people feel crazy, desperate, angry. Um, so the situation of the world in which these movies emerged is so different in each case. Um, and that has to be part of what the response, it's a contextual thing um, that has to be part of the response to them. Um, I felt when I was making the Bannon movie, well, why do I make these in the first place? They interest me. Bannon interests me. He still interests me because I think he represents pretty clearly one strain of thought in America today. It may be an absolutely repellent strain of thought, but it is there. Make no mistake. And I wanted to try to better understand it. I thought that by trying to understand him, I could better understand uh, the 2016 election, and perhaps I could contribute something to the 2020 election. Uh, that might have been truly misguided thinking on my part, but I'm glad I did it. I think it's one of the best films I've made. I'm sorry that it just fell into some kind of black hole. Well, and also it seemed that people were, uh, some people, were upset that you weren't more confrontational with him, that it's somehow objectionable to allow him to reveal himself in a more nuanced way for people to see what's there and and come to some of these conclusions a little on their own without you spoon-feeding people. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong in that interpretation, but that was my sense a bit of some of the backlash. I still don't really understand it. I mean, I do and I don't. I don't want to seem intentionally obtuse here. But I was more confrontational with him in this movie than I've been in any other movie I've made. Yeah. And I was more confrontational because Maybe I was just angrier, but not confrontational enough for many people, clearly. Um, I said to one audience where there was several people complaining about the lack of confrontation or what they perceived as the lack of confrontation, that nothing really would have satisfied them. If I stood up and hit him with a brick, Someone would doubtlessly uh, have said, well, why didn't you hit him with two bricks? Right. Or why didn't you hit him with a bigger brick? Or why didn't you hit him more times with a bigger brick? Or why didn't you kill him? Um, I've just written a piece. I'd be happy to send it to you f uh, f for um, airmail for Graydon Carter's new publication. And it really is about, in many ways, the Bannon enterprise, the American Dharma enterprise of using movies to reveal something about 
your central character. Hmm. But very, very few people even could glom onto that. I would say that most of the people just ignored um, the movies as if it represented some fatuous exercise on my part that missed the whole point of interviewing Bannon. It seems central to his ideology, I thought, was the underpinnings of, of classical American cinema. I, th- I thought it was glaring. I wanted to touch on a few things. I was watching a documentary on Susan Sontag yesterday, the HBO-produced documentary from some years ago, and it made me think of you a little bit, that you lost your dad when you were two. Is that right? Yep, I did. And your mom was a um, school teacher and expert pianist as well? Well, she was a graduate of the Juilliard, and she was, yes, she was an excellent pianist, you know, a concert-level pianist. I was just thinking that to lose your father at that age and be surrounded, I think you wrote about this in Believing is Seeing, um, the evidence of a life that wasn't there, that you were reconstructing from evidence and clues, I mean... Was this was this the kind of primordial goo that was shaping one of the greatest documentarians that we've ever had? Where a trauma well, like seem, that? You seem yeah. to think my work is better than I do, but well, so do a lot I, of other people. <laughs> but um, yes, I think I think I've been in so many ways overcome by the mystery of absence. Hmm. And whether this kind of obsession comes out of my early childhood, the death of my father, um, my amblyopia, my, my lazy eye, and my ultimate near blindness in one eye, I don't know. I got into a terrible argument. Well, it's a funny, terrible argument with Oliver Sacks about binocular vision. Hmm. But I think yes. Um, take Milai, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the massacre in Vietnam that Cy Hirsch wrote about uh, won his first and only Pulitzer. And the book he wrote about it, the articles he wrote, and ultimately the, the book that he wrote about it is really, really interesting. But even more interesting, I've told him this many times, is his second book, which is called Cover Up. Maybe there's even a book before that, but these books came out roughly at the same time. One followed the other, of course. And the book entitled Cover Up is about the attempts to prevent anybody hearing about Milai. And it is a very, very powerful and interesting book. In my view, the best book that he has written 
because often in an investigation, it's the stuff that has been covered up, elided, um, hidden, that tells you something really, really, really important about the story. It certainly influenced me in the making of the Thin Blue Line. Um, I I kept reminding myself about this scene and actually even misquoted it to myself, but it's close enough from film noir out of the past with Robert Mitchum, Jacques Mm -hmm. Tuner. And Robert Mitchum says at one point, I even included the scene in Wormwood. Uh, I could see the frame, but I couldn't see the picture. Hmm. And it's an important line for me. It's roughly that line. It's slightly different. But it's how I remember it. And... This is really, really true about my entire investigation in the Thinbu line, that I realized that there was a frame. A frame in the double meaning of this term. Um, a picture frame, but also that blame had been transferred, the understanding of the entire cra- crime had been compromised because people blamed Randall Dale Adams for the murder when it was David Harris, and that David Harris had been the principal architect, aided and abetted by the Dallas District Attorney's Office and the Dallas Police, of actually transferring blame to Adams rather than Harris. This endlessly fascinating story. Um, I could see the frame, but I couldn't see the picture. And that's certainly true. I wrote this book, A Wilderness of Error, which has now been turned into an FX series that I did not direct and did not want to direct by Mark Smerling, um, where I became fascinated by a case this is another another instance where I expect to be endlessly misunderstood, and there's very little I can do about it. That what attracted me to the McDonald case? Well, there were many, many things that attracted me to the McDonald case, but among them was the fact that they had created a picture of what McDonald had done. That to me, did not make sense. They may, in this instance, have framed a guilty man, but it was still a frame, and the nature of that frame endlessly fascinated me. It still does. And in that book, I would clearly argue it's about a miscarriage of justice, but a completely different kind of miscarriage of justice than the Thin Blue Line. I never really wanted to just do an endless series of standard miscarriages, if there is such a thing, standard miscarriages of justice. (laughs) What was peculiar about this, he might have been guilty. 
I often like to think that he isn't, but I can't offer any substantial proof that that's the case. But I can, to my satisfaction, prove that he didn't get a fair trial and that the trial was engineered. It was constructed in order to ensure a conviction. And alas, what the FX series does is it turns it into a conventional who done it or did he do it rather than to examine what I take to be the deeper meaning of this whole case. But that's the way it goes. Maybe if I'm, you know, eventually um, convicted of something and perhaps even burned at the stake, it'll be for excessive subtlety. <laughs> well, speaking of subtlety, I wanted to, I wanted to help people to understand how you honed your interview technique. And I know that one of the people that you've cited, I don't know how instrumental they were in, in assisting your development as an interviewer, is the Luftwaffe master interrogator Hans Scharf, whose techniques were instrumental in, in the CIA developing effective techniques to get actionable intelligence. And I think you told me once that his master skill was being nice to shot down American well, that pilots. that is the Hans Scharf uh, legend. I mean, I find it endlessly interesting that the greatest Nazi interrogator ended up as a designer of stained glass windows in Disney World. <laughs> but that's the way it goes. God, would I have liked to have interviewed him, the master interrogator, the master interviewer. Huh. I've been quite recently working on a project with David Cornwell, also known as John le Carré, and I have done a whole series of interviews with him. It's an endlessly fascinating character and writer. Um, and very early on in the interview, I think it's probably in the first 10, 15 minutes of our interviews, usually those are the best anyway, in my experience. Um, he tells me there might not be anything different between an interview and an interrogation. Hmm. It's something I'm still thinking about. But I don't think I learned an interviewing style from Han Scharf. I read about Han Scharf pretty late in the game, long after mm. I started interviewing people. Okay. Who who uh, did help? Who did help shape your approach? I'm not sure, really. I'm not sure exactly how Gates of Heaven emerged. Um, certainly, as a documentary filmmaker. I was really influenced by non-standard documentaries. Uh, I didn't start out watching endless versions of cinema verite or direct cinema, whatever it's supposed to be called. Um, I was watching documentaries by 
Werner Herzog, um, Bunuel, Jean Vigo, uh, Fred Wiseman, um, documentaries which I would say are are really quite different than what we commonly consider documentary to be. And, and a version for, of art film, maybe even. Yeah. And it took you, you were almost 40, I believe, before you were able to sort of make any money out of your pursuits with documentaries. Is, it, is that right? I've never, I've never been able to make any real money out of, out of documentary. That has never really happened. I've been fortunate, extraordinarily fortunate, to have found a way to make money which involves mm-hmm. filmmaking. And it's a way to make money that I kind of like. Um, I mean, it's been suggested from time to time that I'm irreparably morally compromised by making commercials, by involving myself in advertising. But it's been extraordinarily lucrative, and I like it. Mm. Um, I even got into what I would consider to be Absurd trouble, if this is really trouble, who knows? Um, Because years ago I was told by um, uh, Ravi Fernandez, who represented me in those days for commercials. We still work together, but not in commercials per se, um, about this woman, Elizabeth Holmes. And he wanted me to meet her. She was interested in having me direct commercials for her startup company, Theranos. And I went out to L.A. I met her, and I directed a whole series of commercials for her. Uh, and I have to say, I liked her. I liked the idea of the company. So I'm a person who dreads having his blood drawn. I even learned the term, eichmophobia, fear of needles. <laughs> we share it. And there was something immensely appealing. There's something still immensely appealing about this idea of being able to take one drop of blood from a fingertip and do all of this battery of tests. Um, Something immensely appealing about the idea, but the idea might not be a real idea. It might be a fantasy. So yes, I did a series of commercials for her. I even did a small little film where I interviewed her on the Imperatron, which I also thought was really interesting. Um, There's something endlessly fascinating about Elizabeth Holmes. Well, of course, we all know what happened. 
she was exposed as a fraud. The company failed, went bankrupt uh, in the middle of massive litigation that's probably still ongoing. Um, and then people took this as an indication of how my work was suspect. At some point I thought, well, maybe I should investigate all of the circumstances of how Alex Gibney got access to the dailies of what I had shot for Theranos. I still do not know for sure. Because you have a cameo in his documentary about her. I have no cameo. They took material that I shot for advertising campaigns long before Theranos fell apart. I, I how they got lit, this material? Yeah. How they got this material? I have no idea. Huh. But I have done, I would say, a thousand commercials. I've done hmm. a lot of commercials. Have I agreed to do every commercial presented to me? No. A lot of them, to be sure, but certainly not all of them. I don't do military advertising because I just don't feel comfortable doing it. I don't feel comfortable doing ads where I'm encouraging some poor kid to get his face blown off in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, Theranos I never had any problem with. And there was a suggestion that I should do due diligence I should investigate all of the companies that I work for. Do I do that? I do not. Well, mostly they're Fortune 500 companies. So, I mean, do I investigate Ford or GM or Apple or Microsoft? I do not. And I did not investigate Theranos. Um, yeah, it's a weird... It's a weird business, uh, and I suppose you could argue, thank God you haven't argued it yet, that it is something that one shouldn't be doing, but I I actually like doing it and have continued doing it. Well, I, I, I just think, though, that isn't it interesting with her story? It seems like an Errol Morris story in the sense of all of these scientists are saying, this just doesn't add up. And we want a woman to occupy this Steve Jobs role. There's all this desire for this stuff to be true. It would feel really good if all of this was true. And she has this bizarre voice that I've heard some people accuse that it was a manufactured low dial tone kind of voice. There's yeah, a lot whatever. of, yeah, whatever. But there's a lot of suspicion about this from some segments, but for the most part, She's assembled this, this board of incredibly powerful men behind her, backing her up, and it's all bullshit. And I, I, I don't know. It, it, I wonder a lot where it reminds me of like the realm of magic where it's like one of the only areas where you deceive people and people feel really good about it. Every other area, they want to punch you in the face if you cheat them, other than, I guess, making a movie and you're deceiving people, but it gives them real emotions, real payoffs. But um, that kind of cognitive bias seems like something right up your alley to investigate the effect of Holmes 
Is that is there something to that? Well, I very much wanted to make a movie with her about her. Yes, hmm. um, but at the time when I first met her, yes, I was fascinated by her. Yes, I did believe that she was doing something important and interesting. Um, and then that gradually changed. But by the time that she had been exposed in the Wall Street Journal, etc., um, I was no longer working for her. Right. Is is the area of, of I mean, at the top we talked about Nathan Fielder. I, I reached out to his people to interview him and found out that one of his big passions is magic. He's at the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. I've always been fascinated about such an insular world predicated on secrecy, obsessive secrecy. And I, I wondered, magicians, like a lot of the most noteworthy ones, were also the people who go out there and expose snake oil people, um, like Uri Geller and that kind of thing. Was magic ever an area that interested you to pursue in filmmaking? Not really. I was close friends with Ricky Jay. Really? He just died. I believe I know this, yes. No, I know you I know I'm just saying I it's uh I was watching one of his a documentary about him and, and I found out he just died. It kinda caught me off guard. Yeah. He um he was a fabulous character. Much loved. By me, I might add. And um as well as many, many others. I was never really particularly attracted to magic, no. Although interested in it, interested in Ricky. Ricky was the kind of person you would sit down and have dinner with him. And he inevitably, really inevitably, had some kind of magic trick that he wanted to show you. And he would do something at the table that was just absolutely mind-boggling. What did I just see? What just happened? What did you just do? And, of course, he loved doing that kind of thing. And he was a genius at it. What about uh, what about murder for you and serial killers? I always think of your obsession so early with going to prisons to, to interview Ed Gein and several others, and then later on in your work, exploring that theme. Um, it's interesting to me that society's followed your fascination with it the way it has, that serial killers, almost the more grisly the better, has become such mainstream entertainment. Yep. What 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 led you to I was, it? I, I was uh, unfortunately ahead of my time in so many ways. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, you know, I remember when In Cold Blood came out, and Executioner's Song, two books that really were immensely influential on E, particularly In Cold Blood, mm. which for me is one of the truly great masterpieces. Um, but after I made my second film, after I made Vernon, Florida, there was a period of six, seven years where I would just endlessly try to get movies made and no one was interested in making them at all. My wife's 
sometimes says that now there are entire channels devoted to those subjects that no one wanted to have anything to do with at all. And uh, and when I first started making films, there was no way to distribute them. There was no independent cinema. There was no documentary movement per se. Uh, documentaries are now everywhere. Um, and you love them. By what? And you love these documentaries as well. I just thought I should add. No, I'm teasing because you said you hate all documentaries that are. I didn't coming say out. all. I think not I, all. I, I'm exaggerating. I, I certainly hate a lot of them, <laughs> and um, I hate them in 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 many ways for being so unambitious of really not trying to do anything, and that's <laughs> fine. I don't have to watch them. Can I put you on the spot for a second about, we talked about Last Dance. Um, Ken Burns took it to task that Michael Jordan uh, really wouldn't give up any of the footage from the year that it's talking about for 10 episodes unless he had Final Cut and was a sort of uh, uncredited producer on it. Do you think that sets a really dangerous precedent, having subjects have that much control so it just becomes, hey, geography masquerading as journalism? Um, it takes all kinds, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not something that I would particularly want to be involved with. Um, but there you go. Yeah. Well, and, and so with, with serial killers, um, where do you think that that came from? Do you think you? That, that serial killers? I, I, I can see where this is going. That you want to mm -hmm. argue that serial killers, uh, serial killers, should have final cut. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think OJ should have had final cut with his great Academy Award-winning documentary. So we could have just seen golf and his football highlights. That would have been wonderful. There's there's just endless varieties of everything. I mean, I guess I'm not. I'm not into this kind of rule-bound filmmaking or prescriptions. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do the other thing. Um, you can do almost anything, if not everything. And you can get criticized for it, certainly, and in many instances, uh, appropriately so. But, yeah, there are no rules, really. It's a free-for-all out there. Can I just get, ask you two more questions before I let you go? Sure. Um, for those who don't know, you are a pretty passionate taxidermist, or at least a collector of taxidermy. I'll be precise. No, I'm not. I'm not a taxidermist. I have never stuffed <laughs> an animal with my bare hands. But you nonetheless like stuffed animals a fair bit. Well, I have a fair number of them in my office and in my home. I do my, like taxidermy. Would Would you do me uh, the honor of, of listing some of these animals? Well, I'm just looking at a horse, which is on my wall, um, uh, that comes from a taxidermy shop on the left bank in Paris, De Roll. Hmm. Um, I have a marabou, also that came from De Roll. Uh, I have a monkey's head that 
my wife, who also loves taxidermy, bought from a friend in Rhode Island. So, yeah, I like taxidermy. It's probably as much or if not as much, even more than the next guy. So what is what is the the line between taxidermy, people loving their pets that they want them stuffed, and there's a big industry of this, which blows me away, versus sort of trophy hunting, wanting to stuff stuff that you killed? Because these seem like such diametrically well, I have no opposed desire, I have no desire to kill animals, and so I don't do that. If I see a nice piece of taxidermy, obviously someone else has done all of the dirty work. <laughs> and uh, I can just have them in my home or my office as um, silent friends. But um, no, I'm not so much interested um, in killing things. Um, That's kind of my point, though, is that they're they're diametrically imposed impulses, and yet the common feature is this attachment to a, a an animate object being inanimate. I don't know. There's It just really fascinates me that animal lovers also want to have a stuffed thing the same way that people who really love to kill something do and but have it in their never, homes. I would never have my pet stuffed. It seems indecent. Um... You know, my dogs have been cremated. We have the ashes in a box. But I would never I would never stuff my French bulldogs. I have too much respect for them. <laughs> Ivan, was it, if I remember correctly? Ivan is still extant. Ivan is sitting not very far from me. Good. I like Ivan. And um, I, uh, I love the guy. Yeah, um, I used to say to my mother would criticize me for talking to so many killers. Um, I would say much better to talk to a mass murderer than become one. And I what? think that still holds true. I mean, do you really think that you're, was there something prophylactic about you getting as close as you did to these people to avoid pursuing them, pursuing that path on some level? Probably not, but it sounds good. No, <laughs> but it, I well, often, I yeah, sorry. I don't see myself, you know, there's this usual line that everybody is really capable of anything. They're capable of the most unspeakable crimes. Um, and I don't know what kind of a situation I would have to be put in to hurt someone or kill them, but it's not something that I imagine myself doing. Um, maybe I'm just too scared to kill anybody or too aware of the repercussions. I can't really say. I used to look at McNamara and I would say to people, you know, I could have killed a million people, but my grades just weren't good enough. <laughs> yeah. But you but you're nonetheless 
really fascinated about those who do cross this line and how they do it. And why? I am endlessly fascinated. Still am. I'm supposed to finish this book now for Penguin. I was promised my editor a book about my obsession with murderers and murderers I have known over the years, and actually a fairly extensive list. Um, and who knows? I have so much stuff I'm supposed to do, but I'm working on it. What do you make if America loves murder the way it does, as sort of shallow entertainment, that the suicide rate is triple the homicide rate currently? And suicide, you can't print it. There's all these issues about the diction or the nomenclature. Like People are so uncomfortable with it. I don't understand why murder is so comfortable and suicide is so threatening. Interesting. Um, I mean, suicide is something that you do to yourself. And, um, you know, I'm not sure. I think the question is a really interesting one. It's sure. like, certainly it's something that I have contemplated, but I would never do. Just because there's too many people I love and too many people dependent on me, and I know that it would have an adverse effect on them. Are there Were there any suicides out in the culture that affected you in your life, either friends, family, or, I don't know, I mean, his, characters? My, my mm-hmm. brother's wife. Your brother's wife, huh? My, um, my father died at the age of 43. Wow. Um, in 1950, and my brother, my older brother, six years older than me, um, died of a sudden heart attack at the age of 40 while hiking in the White Mountains. Uh, A really devastating event, devastating for me and for my mother who had to go through this nightmare twice, not once, but twice. And my brother's widow killed herself, gassed herself in her garage. And that, too, was a nightmare. Death is one of those things that never really does get resolved. And properly considered, it is the ultimate nightmare. I heard it was said once, I I think it may have been Kierkegaard who said that a suicide forces you to look at a biography through the prism of the death. The manner of the death forces you to reevaluate the entire biography And I just thought, again, how different that is than with murder, which is so popular. And then... um, Well, murder, we think of it as not necessarily, but we think of it as something external. Yeah, right. It isn't always. But the fact that someone would choose to take their own life 
I'm wondering, is Kierkegaard right? Maybe so. Last question? Yes. Um, you spent some time with our president, good friend of yours, Donald Trump, um, discussing his favorite film, Citizen Kane. Read this recent article that I wrote that's going to appear, I think, in airmail, if it isn't already up. But it's really about, in, in many ways, without ever telling you that it's about the Bannon film, it is certainly about the Bannon film in part, but it's about uh, Donald Trump's recent Trump uh, concerning mutiny on the bounty. And, uh, which which one? Um, he never specified which one. I actually sat down. I watched all. Well, there are five supposedly in all. I watched the the three most recent mutinies on the bounty. And um, yeah, read the article. You got it right. I got it. I read right. it. Well, so what I wonder with with Trump is were you a fan of Candid Camera when you were a kid? Yeah, sure. Are you you're not old enough to remember Candid Radio, Candid Microphone? Nope. Okay, so that predated it, same same founder um of Candid Alan Camera. Alan Funt. Alan Funt, fascinating guy. Um what I w- want to ask you about is from somebody who's interviewed so many people and invented the Interatron to do it is how do we go from the real outrage that was there with candid microphone that people felt this was intrusive, was violating their privacy, this was an inner sanctum that shouldn't be publicized to a society where people, like Truman Show was a, presented as a dysotopian nightmare to be filmed from birth until death. Uh, now it's kind of a nightmare of anxiety for kids not to be on TV all the time or presenting their lives to millions of unknown eyes. What what do you make of that, that so much anxiety with kids now not to be performing all the time, this public versus private battle inside of us? As somebody who interviews people... I don't know. I mean, we're all fascinated to somehow figure out who we are, who people are, who they really are. Uh, All of these techniques somehow to penetrate to the core of what a person might be, you know, whether it's, it's Sasha Baron Cohen or candid camera Um, but these are experiments and they're really interesting experiments because they tell us something that we we didn't know or we certainly didn't know in advance of seeing these shows I think the entire Trump presidency has been a version of this where we now see a version of America, which I would prefer not to know, but is clearly there. Um, 
it's been an excursion, if you like, into uh, investigative documentary. Did, did you have a sense when you were with Trump? I interviewed Harry Benson, the photographer who I think he photographed 12 presidents going back to Eisenhower. I said I asked how many years it took him to know when Trump was interested in running for president, and he looked at me like I was a moron and just said, years, five minutes. It was no different than if I was with Hitler. If, if this was the biggest job, he wanted it. It was that obvious and that clear. Did you have that sense of him? Um, in those days, Trump was and probably still is in many important respects a joke. Um, what was so amazing is his obliviousness to the world, his obtuseness, I suppose, is one way to describe it. I read an article today, I believe this morning, um, about someone had come to the remarkable discovery was it in the New York Times or the Washington Post? I can't remember. That Trump might not just be um, stupid, he might just simply be oblivious. Um, as if this had just occurred to them. Um, it, it usually with humans isn't one thing specifically versus another. But I tried to write about it. This is part of my article on Mutiny on the Bounty, Citizen Kane, Trump. Trump, Kane, and Bly. <laughs> and, um, oh, there's, something, there's something interesting about people's interpretations of movies. We think that people all see the world in the same way that we do, but clearly they don't. And that is a frightening thought, the disparity of opinion about something that we think is obvious or beyond controversy. Oh, I have to get off in a, in a minute or so because yeah. I have a call with an advertising agency. Well, okay, last last quick question. Uh, one of the things that got a lot of controversy with Michael Jordan in the documentary is when he was asked to speak out on a white supremacist who was running in North Carolina, his home state, against an African-American, he said Republicans buy sneakers too. Yeah. That it, that's made a lot of people very uncomfortable. Because they're... They're Republicans, and they really are looking for a new pair of sneakers. <laughs> I think Democrats is hoping that there might be something a little more important than his bottom line. Um, fine. Maybe there wasn't. Right. Errol, thank you so much for this. You know, for example, I mean, yeah. the, the one one great example is that uh, you know, for some people say 100,000, 150,000, 200,000 or more COVID-19 deaths are okay if the market just keeps chugging along. Sure. Others find that a very, very repulsive and disgusting idea. I'd like to think I'm one of them.
Right. Errol, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. It. You've been you've been very indulgent with me and tolerant, and I appreciate it. <laughs> so thank you. I enjoy talking to you as always, and thank you for doing this. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening. <laughs>